Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. This episode is from last week. It's from Monday, November 8th, 2021. And this one goes briefly over calcium and vitamin D status and a review of um, a couple of NFPE scenarios. So really pulling together everything we'd worked on so far for nutrition-focused physical exam. Today's Did You Know? Did you know, this one comes from Steph, did you know you can sync your task manager to your calendar? Not that any of us have multiple things we're trying to keep track of. Um, She writes, there are tons of methods to keep track of your schedule, your tasks, and your life. Virtual task managers can sync your virtual calendar for seamless organization. For example, Steph uses one called Remember the Milk, which does include a free version. It is a website, has an app, and is also able to sync with her Outlook calendar so that she only needs to go to one place to know what she needs to do that day. And I got to tell you, Steph is on it in terms of organization. When I ask her to remind me of something, she will like write an email right then and there and then delay delivery until she knows I'm going to be in a place where I could do something about it. So like if I need to remember to bring something from home, she'll write me an email and say delay delivery till 8 p.m. so that when I'm actually home, her email comes in and reminds me to do the thing. I'm just saying... Steph is now my organizational goals. I need to look into Remember the Milk. So there is today's Did You Know? Did you know tomorrow you need to remember to dress professionally, (laughs) wear a lab coat, bring those safety glasses, right? Set a reminder. You got to have all those things. All right. Micronutrient assessment. We're going to finish up a little bit of micronutrient assessment that we didn't get to last week, talk about NFPE some more, and then have more time for questions and answers because there were lots of great questions last week. So let's, let's make sure we leave time for those questions. The micronutrients that we covered last week were, for the most part, ones that you might be able to detect physical signs of micronutrient deficiency, right? So... Vitamin A with the, what did we decide it was? Beto? Some, one of the labs figured it out. Was it Beto's? Beto's spots in the eye, right? So vitamin A, we could, we could detect vitamin A with that or keratomalacia. The B vitamins, glossy red tongue, right? Probable B vitamin deficiency. Also some neurological deficits. Vitamin C, we're looking at signs of scurvy, so bleeding gums, um, poor wound healing, bruises, petechiae. All of those things are um, possibilities for vitamin C. And then we skipped to um, vitamin K, I believe, because vitamin K's role in coagulation means that a vitamin K deficiency could also lead to petechiae and easy bruising. We skipped over a couple of micronutrients because they don't have overt um, physical signs, except in the case of extreme deficiency, I guess, for vitamin D. But in any case... While we're on the topic of micronutrients, I do need to talk about calcium, phosphorus, and magnesium, and then we'll also talk about vitamin D. And yes, that still doesn't cover everything because I have an entire day planned for iron assessment and then um, the anemias. So we'll get there is the point. So calcium, phosphorus, and magnesium are the major mineral components of the body, meaning they're mostly in your bones. Um, they, they do have structural components in soft tissue as well as bone, and they're regulatory agents in bodily fluids. But bone is the major reservoir of these minerals. And for the most part, if you're doing, well, for all part, if you're doing a nutrition-focused physical exam, you can't see someone's bones, right? You could potentially have a DEXA scan, which would tell you something about your bone mineral density, right? 
but that's certainly not part of nutrition-focused physical exam, and it's not part of your typical assessment of patients. So the trick with calcium deficiency is that calcium deficiency occurs over time. It's usually a combination of things. It could be poor dietary intake as well as predisposing genetic factors, endocrine factors, and age-related factors. Phosphorus and magnesium deficiencies, if those, are, if those occur, phosphorus and magnesium, they're typically the result of disease states or drugs that affect the absorption or uptake of those minerals. So phosphorus and magnesium deficiencies are um, less common, though they can happen. In terms of um, calcium status, most, and when I say most, I mean 99% of the body's calcium is stored in bone. So when I say vast majority, I mean almost all of it, right? Almost all of the body's calcium is stored in bone. However, that 1% that is circulating in bodily fluids has a lot of roles. It's involved in enzyme activation. Calcium's involved in blood coagulation. Um, we need it for our muscles to contract, including the heart. The heart is a muscle. I'm a big fan of my heart muscle contracting. Calcium is needed for nerve transmission. It's also needed for hormone function and membrane transport. So it has a lot of important roles. And because of all of those very important roles, my favorite being that heart contraction, um, serum calcium should be very stable, right? The body will deplete the bones of calcium to maintain that serum calcium, right? So we will maintain serum calcium at the expense of the mineral density of the bones because without the adequate serum calcium, we don't have blood coagulation, we don't have muscles contracting, the nerves aren't working, we have problems. However, you could still see hypocalcemia, meaning too low of a level of calcium in the blood. That might happen as a result of hypoparathyroidism, so issues with the parathyroid, hypomagnesemia, I just said low magnesium is not common, but it can happen, right? Or acute pancreatitis. You could also have hypercalcemia, too high of a calcium level in the blood, which could be the result of hyperparathyroidism, hyperthyroidism, or sarcoidosis. So when we test for calcium levels in the blood, it's a very small range that it should be within that range. If it's outside of that range, it could be hypocalcemia or hypercalcemia, or it could be due to bone fracture or spinal cord injury um, because you have rapidly atrophying bone. So bone that is rapidly being broken down releases calcium into circulating bodily fluids. So if you have a broken bone, right, that's going to release more calcium into the blood. But it should be very obvious in that case that you broke a bone. That, that we, hopefully we know about that, gracious sakes. If you're walking around on a broken leg, that's a problem. Vitamin D and calcium homeostasis. So we do calcium and vitamin D together because they work so closely together to maintain that calcium in the serum. So calcitriol is the hormonally active metabolite of vitamin D, and you'll see this abbreviated as 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3. But we need it, calcitriol, we need it for calcium absorption. So remember, you are not what you eat so much as you are what you absorb, and you've got to have enough vitamin D to absorb calcium. 
So calcitriol is required for calcium absorption. It upregulates the genes for transport cells. Calcium also works in the kidney to signal parathyroid hormone to reduce calcium excretion. So calcitriol is working to upregulate transport proteins to get calcium into the body. And calcitriol is working to reduce the release of calcium from the body. And calcitriol and parathyroid hormone both can stimulate bone breakdown by osteoclasts. So osteoclasts are those cells um, it's when you're breaking down the bone cell. So point being, there's a lot of pieces to the body that are working very hard to keep that blood calcium within a normal range. So increasing absorption, decreasing excretion, and increased resorption or breaking down of the bones to keep that blood calcium where we need it to be. So to do that, you have to have adequate vitamin D. Vitamin D, known as the sunshine vitamin, can be synthesized in the skin. So if you have adequate cholesterol and adequate exposure to the sun, you can synthesize all the vitamin D that you need. So you start with um, a cholesterol metabolite 7-dehydrocholesterol, which can be converted by UV light to pre-vitamin D3 or pre-calciferol. Pre-vitamin D3 is then converted to vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol, which then diffuses to the blood and circulates to the liver. Um, and then from the liver, it is then activated to the active form of vitamin D. However, we have just turned our clocks back <laughs> for daylight savings. It's also November in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and we live in Ohio, where, where overcast skies are pretty much all we're gonna get from here on till about what, April, May, you think? Yeah. So areas with persistent smog, overcast skies, or very short days, uh, which that would be us here in Columbus, overcast skies and very short days, are going to impede synthesis of vitamin D. If you were living, say, on the equator, um, you could, and light-skinned, you could potentially get adequate vitamin D within about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but darker, darker skin just takes longer to synthesize vitamin D. Sunscreen inhibits the production of vitamin D. And we have age-related changes. As we age, we are less efficient at producing vitamin D from the sun. So. There's lots of things that can influence whether or not we are able to get enough vitamin D from the sun. Um, so regions like Alaska, Scandinavia, places that have short periods of low-intensity sunlight in the winter are known for their high consumption of fatty fish and fish oils, which can be an excellent source of vitamin D. There are very few food sources of vitamin D. Milk is fortified here in the United States with vitamin D. Um, but it's not naturally occurring. I think there's like mushrooms are a good source of vitamin D, but you'd have to eat a lot of those. Um, so you may need more time in the sun. You may need to move south if you live here in Ohio, um, or you may need supplements for vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency in children causes a softening of the bone known as rickets. So we're doing adult malnutrition this week. You're not gonna see rickets in any of our cases. But in children, you can get this bow-legged appearance. So because you have, um, basically the child is, is growing, trying to grow taller, but without adequate calcium and vitamin D, 
um, you end up with this softening of the bone or a bow-legged appearance. So that would be, so this is a very obvious physical manifestation of a vitamin deficiency, but this is not gonna come up on NFPE because this is looking at a pediatric population, right? We're looking more at adults this week. For adults, you can do serum levels of vitamin D. Um, these are the currently accepted limits for, um, Notice we've got nanomoles per liter and nanograms per milliliter. So two different sets of criteria here. Um, so you've got less than 30 nanomoles per liter associated with vitamin D deficiency, leading to rickets in infants and children and osteomalacia in adults. I need to go back and check my lab work from a couple weeks ago, but I'm pretty sure it came back that I was at 28 nanomoles per liter for vitamin D. What should I do about that? I live in Ohio, specifically Columbus. What do you guys think? Yes. Probably so, yeah. I should probably get on that. I don't really, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna develop rickets, but I would like to avoid osteomalacia. Yeah? Yeah, my doctor uh, on the lab results, it was just like hidden in there, like under that result was like, and now start supplementing with two thousand international units per day. I was like, okay, I will I will get on that. So yes, I, I, there you go, I'm vitamin D deficient. I had no idea that wouldn't have come up except for doing lab work. You can't look at me and see that I have a vitamin D deficiency. You could look at my context where I live and figure out that it's probable. Um, although we're coming off of summertime, so I would have thought I'd be in better shape. But no, maybe it's those age-related changes. I am a thousand years old, after all. So generally considered inadequate is still between 30 and 50 nanomoles per liter. Um, we get to adequacy at greater than or equal to 50 nanomoles per liter or greater than or equal to 20 nanograms per milliliter. So there's, there's my target. I got a ways to go. However, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. So greater than 125 nanomoles per liter or greater than 50 nanograms per milliliter, we have emerging evidence of adverse effects. So there is, there is, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Your body, if you're synthesizing all of your vitamin D from UV exposure, your body is never going to make more vitamin D than you need. So there's no risk of vitamin D toxicity from sun exposure, um, but there is risk of vitamin D toxicity from supplements. So I'm going to take the supplements as recommended by a physician and then next year check in and see how I'm doing, whether I need to keep supplementing at that level or maybe decrease or stop altogether. Vitamin D is a really fun one to follow in the literature because I'm a nerd. Um, but this is one where basically vitamin D experts and dermatologists like to have it out all the time, right? <laughs> dermatologists are firmly in the camp of let's not develop skin cancer. Um, so just take a supplement because you can. Whereas some vitamin D experts are strong advocates for getting outside and spending time in the sun because you can't overdo it on sun exposure. Unless, of course, you develop skin cancer. Thus the debate, right? I'm telling you, it's a fun one. You can, you can read up on that one. So calcium and vitamin D, absolutely micronutrients of concern, things we'd want to keep in mind. Um, as far as assessing these, if you're concerned with a patient's um, dietary intake, it's going to be a matter of asking what people typically eat, right? So a 24-hour recall, one, one day is not really going to capture someone's habitual intake for calcium. So you'd need to follow them forward over time or ask them, you know, what is typical for you um, and talk about dairy alternatives as well because right? there are plenty of calcium-fortified dairy alternatives. But these two are not 
for the most part, going to come up on NFPE. And that is what we were doing this week. So NFPE. I think I've shown this slide like six times now, but this is more or less what to expect, except we need to add in our safety glasses and add in our procedure masks and add in the N95 respirators for those who need them. Um, the patients will probably, this is one of our actors, she comes I think every year, she's fabulous. They will probably be wearing gowns, I'm not sure why this one isn't, um, but they'll probably be wearing like a hospital gown. And if they have evidence of swelling, it would be on the edema pads, which would be on their legs. So you can ask questions about that. As of this moment, I now have enough observers to watch all six of the rooms, all nine hours that we're going to be doing this. Um, so the observer will come in the room and give you feedback right away. Tuesday morning, folks. There's just too darn many of you, so you're gonna get 12 minutes in the scenario, and that, that includes getting feedback, whereas Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday afternoon, you're gonna get 15 minutes, a whopping three extra minutes. Um, we're gonna do everything we can to make this as low stress for you as possible. You'll get time to review the case before you go in the room. Then you have a, about eight to 10 minutes to do your full NFPE, I know, stress. Um, and then you have one to two minutes to come up with your diagnosis, and then you can go back in the room and converse with the observer about your diagnosis, what you did well, what you can improve, get feedback from the actor as well, and then you go back to the room and like deep sigh of relief until it's your turn to go again, right? Questions on that? It is quick, I know. There's a lot of you, but it's worth it, I promise. I still don't have an answer as to whether we're going to be able to look in patients' mouths based on the, the upping of the game on the masks. I'm guessing the answer is going to be no. Um, but these are two graduates of ours from several years ago now in the, in the way before times. Um, if, you did, if we were able to take masks off, you could use a pen light like what you see here to look in the patient's eyes and mouth. Um, I have the pen lights. I will bring them. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know where we're gonna fall on that whole checking the mouth thing. I also have some really nice like laminated, those pocket cards, the cards that have all the, the criteria and the, you know, the different details. I have six of those. So when you go in the room, you can take one of those cards with you as well. So we'll have those resources available to you. Um, let's see. <sighs> Reminders, dress professionally, lab coat. I'll bring the pen lights. Make sure you wash your hands and put on gloves. You'll already have your mask on. Do be sure to introduce yourself and ask permission. And then you're gonna go through and check for signs, physical signs of muscle wasting, fat loss, micronutrient deficiencies, and fluid retention. But again, these patients are not actually malnourished. So what are you going to ask them? What's your plan? I gave you the slide, you guys. It has the questions on it. What are you going to ask? Okay. Have you noticed any changes or differences in weight, right? We, particularly for weight, what else would you want to know? Usual, usual weight, did I hear usual weight? 
and then time like how exactly so we want to know if there's been a weight change weight loss or weight gain but also in what time frame has that happened right and you may need to ask the patient to find that out is this typical for you how has your appetite been if you get tired of the word changes or differences any other words you guys think you might use No one has thought about this. Yes? Is this, is this normal for you, right? Or is this abnormal for you? That works. Does that pretty well cover it? Okay. All right, let's do a couple examples. Case number one, history of present illness. 15-year-old female with a history of familial adenomatous, you know what, I practiced this word, I did, adenomatous polyposis, status post, subtotal gastrectomy, partial colectomy with multiple small bowel obstructions, has been on home parental nutrition for three years, admitted with flu-like symptoms. During the workup, she was found to have hepatic ab abscess. Past medical history significant for severe malnutrition. Current physician note reflects severe malnutrition as a current diagnosis. Her medical diagnosis is hepatic abscess. Diet history. She is dependent on her home parental nutrition for the past three years. No intake by mouth. For weight changes, the patient denies any weight loss. She is stable and within her usual body weight for the past six months. On physical exam, you find she has well-defined temples, no dark circles. Shoulders are well-rounded. Clavicles are visible. Quads and calves are well-developed. There's a large space between the fingers at the triceps. There is no edema, and she reports no impairment in functional status. Her vital signs, temps on the high end of normal, 99 degrees Fahrenheit, heart rate 83 beats per minute, white blood cell count, which we have not gotten to yet, that's hematology. An elevated white blood cell count is indicative of infection, right? So white blood cell count 13.41, which is elevated, albumin 2.3 is depleted, and glucose of 80 is normal. All right, what's the diagnosis? Doc says she has severe malnutrition. What do you say? I have, I have a couple heads shaking now. I miss the Zoom chat, right? So much easier to put, put comments in the Zoom chat. So we, we say no malnutrition. Is that what we're getting at? Okay. Why do we say no malnutrition? What do you think, Jillian? Okay. So there's no evidence of muscle wasting. You, you kind of got it fat loss, too. What do you think, Hannah? Okay, so there's, we, got, we got three things that she's not malnourished, no muscle loss, no fat loss, 
Um, she's weight stable. What else? Yes, right? So she does not have muscle loss. She does not have fat loss. She has not lost weight. There are six criteria. What are the other three criteria? What do you think, Abby? Okay, so no impairment and functional status. We got two more. Jillian? Doesn't have edema. What's the last one? What's number six? What do you think, Beth? Yes, so her intake is adequate, right? So our six criteria, inadequate intake, weight loss, muscle wasting, fat loss, fluid retention, and functional status. She has impairments in none of these, right? How many criteria out of six do you have to have to be malnourished? Two, yes, you have to have two out of six to be malnourished. She has zero out of six. She is not malnourished. Sophie, thank you for the lead-in to the explanation of why might this physician think that the patient has malnutrition? Because her albumin is low. Is albumin an indicator of nutrition status? No, thank you, it's not, right? But it is, it is the myth persists, right? So there's actually, I'll, I'll show you the details in a second. There's a podcast episode from the American Society for Parental and Internal Nutrition talking about the position paper that they wrote, I think it was 2021, I think it was this year, um, about visceral proteins as a marker of nutritional status, meaning they're not a marker of nutritional status. They are a marker of inflammation. This patient has a hepatic abscess and elevated white blood cells. Why might this patient have inflammation? Infection, yes, right? The patient is sick, right? The patient is very ill with a hepatic abscess and an infection, but the patient is not malnourished, right? We start off with the extreme examples and work our way in, right? So this is an extreme example because the patient's in no way malnourished, but it's illustrative particularly of that albumin. So we would actually, for the PES statement for this one, we would say no malnutrition present. It's almost a reverse PES because you're saying no malnutrition present as evidenced by adequate everything, right? Everything is within normal limits. So there's no evidence to support a malnutrition diagnosis. All right, on the flip side, 45-year-old female admitted through the emergency department with chief complaint of altered mental status, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. Noted weight loss with decreased appetite for greater than five days. Past medical history significant for Crohn's disease, diagnosed nine months prior to admission. Imaging studies, a CT of the head finds no acute findings, whereas a CT of the abdomen and pelvis finds chronic inflammation of the small bowel. Her weight on admission is 125 pounds, height 5 feet 10 inches, BMI 17.9, albumin 2.0 grams per deciliter, and nutrition history, husband reports patient with no appetite and only consuming 25% of her typical intake for the past few months. On physical exam, you find the orbital pads have dark circles, a hollow appearance, and loose skin. There's a hollow depression of the temporalis muscle, prominent protruding clavicle bone, and prominent acromion process. When pinching the triceps, your fingers nearly touch. She has squaring off of the shoulder and a protruding scapula. 
hollow depressions between her finger bones and a depression between thumb and forefinger. Ribs are prominent and well-defined. And we have three to four plus pitting edema behind the malleolus. Does this patient have malnutrition? Yes. Okay. What are, which, which criteria would put her, what now? Inadequate intake. All right. We've got 25% of her usual intake. What else? Weight loss, right? So she's not at her usual body weight. We got, we got fluid, fluid retention, so we got edema. Muscular wasting. Two more. Impaired functional status. Fat loss. I told you it would start at the extremes, right? This patient has every possible criteria for malnutrition. The patient can have as many diseases as he damn well pleases. Right? You need at least two, but you can have more than two. Would you classify this as non-severe malnutrition, or would you classify it as severe malnutrition? Keep in mind, you'll have those pocket cards to help you discern the difference. But off the top of your head, non-severe or severe? severe? Severe, yes, right? So severe malnutrition would be that severe loss of muscle, severe loss of fat, which we can see from the squaring off of the shoulders, the triceps nearly touching for the fat. The fluid retention is three to four plus, that's severe. Her intake would be in the severe category for any time frame that we put it under, right? Um, and then did I put her usual body weight in here or we just have, yeah, we just have her admit weight. So we don't have a usual body weight in her case, but we did have note of weight loss and you could do a quick Hamwe equation to figure out what her, her ideal body weight would be. Spoilers, it's greater than 125 pounds, right? What would be, so we've, she's got severe malnutrition. What is the etiology? What is the context? She was diagnosed with Crohn's about nine months prior. I think chronic disease, yeah. Yeah. Anyone take, want to take a stab at coming up with a PES statement for this? Yes, no, maybe? Everybody love PES statements? Something to the effect of severe malnutrition in the context of chronic illness, maybe parentheses, Crohn's, right? So the trick of the PES statement is if there's only one. The trick of the PES statement is we need to write down what the nutrition problem is, right? We're not there to, to explain what the medical diagnosis is. That's somebody else's job. But in this case, the patient already has a medical diagnosis of Crohn's. So we would not say Crohn's disease as evidenced by all these signs and symptoms. We would say severe malnutrition in the context of chronic illness. You could do parentheses Crohn's for anyone who's, you know, needs to be caught up to speed here. Because it's already been diagnosed, right? We focus on what is the nutrition-related problem. What is the thing we can address? And so that's going to be um, the inadequate intake. Um, most likely, we can take a look at why that's happening. Maybe it's poor absorption, but we're going to say chronic, you know, <clears throat> severe malnutrition as evidenced, severe malnutrition due to chronic illness, Crohn's, as evidenced by or related to Crohn's or related to inadequate intake or related to, take your pick, right? <laughs> as evidenced by all of the things, right? We do need to document the severity of the malnutrition. In this case, it is severe malnutrition. You have to have two out of six criteria to diagnose malnutrition. And then 
I got some great questions for this class last year. Like, what if the patient has four of the, four of the six criteria, three are non-severe, but one is severe? Would you call that non-severe malnutrition, or would you call that severe malnutrition? What do you guys think? You got four out of six, but three out of the four are non-severe, and the fourth is severe. What do you think, Sophie? So this is really hard, right? Because if you had four of six and all four met the non-severe criterion, then it's non-severe, right? You could have six of six, and so long as they're all under the non-severe definition, it's still non-severe malnutrition. But where is that tipping point? At what point does one, you know, does one severe criteria make it severe malnutrition? Um, in chatting with Dr. Roberts and Dr. Orchard, they would say you need two of the criteria to be severe to make it severe malnutrition. Um, so if that's the case, you could, you could still have four things that are malnourished, but if two are non-severe and two are severe, we would call that severe malnutrition, um, which it does matter. We do need to document as accurately as we possibly can, although if the patient has non-severe malnutrition rather than severe malnutrition, are you just going to not treat it? I mean, you're going to intervene in any case, right? So the biggest thing is really, do we have malnutrition or not, right? And then we need to know the severity, and then we need to know the etiology and come up with that PES statement. We'll talk more on Wednesday about PES, I, I will not forget. We'll talk more on Wednesday about PES statements and like coding and billing of all this stuff, but you have a question. Yes, I would want you to include all of the signs that you were able to document. Right, so anything that we can do to document where the patient is now is gonna help us going forward to show whether the patient is improving or not, right? So yes, I would want you, you only need two out of six to be malnourished, right? But go ahead and document all six if they've got them, right? Yes, you can end up with a very, very lengthy note, a very lengthy PES statement. Was there a hand up over here? Did I imagine it? Just stretching. I need like an extra weekend, forget an extra hour. I need an extra weekend, right? Sounds good to me. Other questions, comments, concerns? I'm trying to think. What else has come up? I did throw in a resources slide for you guys. Um, since we're talking about micronutrients and deficiencies of micronutrients and the possibility of supplementing with those types of things, um, you've got the PubMed Health website, which is a great place to go for any health-related topic. The NIH Office of Dietary Supplements fact sheets, um, they have fact sheets written at both the consumer level and the health professional level. So if you need a quick reference of what was that again, you can go to the ODS fact sheets. Medline Plus also has a guide to herbs, herbs and supplements, right? So if someone is considering supplementation, you can check whether or not those types of things are safe or regulated, when of course they're not really regulated here in the United States, thank you, Deshae. Um, and in part, because there is no regulation, there is also a natural medicines comprehensive database, which you have access to through the library system. This is a great place to go to look for the current evidence on any um, herbs or supplements that any of your patients may report taking, um, and also a good place to get a sense of the safety and efficacy um, for those types of um, supplements.